0: Thank you, Dan. Good morning, Encounter Church. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Uh, Let us begin uh, there in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, you'll find a copy of God's Word uh, there at one of the chairs uh, next to you. If you did not bring uh, your own copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to. Uh, Grab a copy of that or pull it up on a device of some sort, so that way you can follow along. Acts chapter 19, if you are using one of the Bibles there at the seats, you'll find it on page 1,581. Uh, 1,581. Uh, Thank you, uh, Michael Fay, for leading us in that uh, song. And uh, we do, right? We do grieve, but we do not grieve uh, without hope. And uh, so we're grateful for that. And I echo Dan's encouragement. For you to join with us on Wednesday evening as we honor the Lord by celebrating uh, Margot's life. Uh, Acts chapter nineteen is where we find ourselves this morning, and if you've been uh, traveling with us over the last uh, twenty weeks now, a so number of months, we've been going through the book of Acts and uh, and looking at it from the perspective of Jesus' instruction, where he uh, as Jesus. After he he rose from the grave on the third day, as history records and as the Bible records as well, uh, Jesus then appeared before many people uh, for 40 days and then ascended back into heaven. And just before ascending back into heaven, Jesus uh, looked at his disciples and he said, You will be my witnesses. You will be witnesses of this reality that I rose again from the grave. And, uh, and so he entrusted this news of his resurrection uh, to his followers, to his believers. And all of these years later, uh, we are able, we are given, we are entrusted with that same responsibility, that same privilege to serve as witnesses of the life-changing power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. And so this entire teaching series is looking at the book of Acts from that theme, we've seen it time and time again across these many chapters of these who have ha- have identified themselves as witnesses. They say, "I right, we we saw it with our own eyes, and it's worthy of believing." And so, this morning, uh, we are going to begin uh, here in first. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, stay there in the book of Acts, because for you, I've made it super easy, uh, so that way you don't have to turn too many pages. But I'd like to begin by reading this passage that Paul writes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because as we've been learning, especially in, in recent weeks, uh, many of the other New Testament books of the Bible that are writ- were written in a letter form actually relate to the timeline of The book of Acts and in Acts chapter 19 that we're studying today, the Apostle Paul, he's 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 rolling into the city of Ephesus and Ephesus was a was a sinful, sinful, sinful city that's that unfortunately even uh, some of the cities of of America that we would say, boy, stay away from that city uh, would it would they would pale in comparison believe it or not, to the city of Ephesus, just rampant with idolatry, rampant with immorality, rampant with 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 criminal activity, just uh, just so much. It was just saturated with sin. And so we're going to see in Acts chapter 19 that that Paul is arriving in Ephesus. But what's interesting is First Corinthians chapter 15. Keep in mind, the book of of Acts was written by Luke. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was written by the Apostle Paul, the very one who was ministering there in the city of Ephesus. And so he provides us a very unique commentary about his ministry efforts in the, book, in, in the city of Ephesus here in 1 in Corinthians 15. Here's what he says. He says, regard, and he's describing his, his ministry there in the city of Ephesus, the sin-saturated city. He says, I face death every day, yes. Just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, look how he describes it. He says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? And he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, we'll unwrap that a little bit more at the end of the sermon, but I bring this to our attention at the beginning of the sermon. Just for us to understand that Paul describes his attempts of ministry, his, his witnessing. He describes it in this way of fighting wild beasts. Now, some people might think, well, maybe he's talking about the Colosseum, that maybe he actually fought the lions in the Colosseum. But, but that not, does not seem to be what Paul is speaking about. Instead, he is referring to uh, the people who oppose him there in the city of Ephesus. Those very people that he's trying to reach, he refers to them as as wild beasts. Now, all of you young folks, right, that should kind of capture your attention, right? I always thought it would be fun to be a dragon slayer. Can I get any witnesses out there, right, to fight some wild beasts? And so I became a pastor, and here I am, (laughs) And I'll leave the commentary remark there. But So, right, we understand this. sometimes you feel like as you're trying to minister to other people, as you're trying to reach people that you are, fighting wild beasts, maybe they're in your office place, right? You're trying to stand for the Lord. You're trying to share the gospel with other people. And you feel like you're fighting wild beasts, Uh, that there's just strong opposition against you. Maybe students, right, at your school, a college student, there uh, with college professors, right? maybe sometimes you feel like right, it's, it's, it's a battle that you just should give up because you're constantly met with strong opposition. And so Paul tells us, he says, I'm fighting wild beasts here in Ephesus. Well, the beautiful thing is here in chapter 19, we are going to see Paul's approach to ministering in this Sin saturated city, a city that honestly. It seems even many believers today would probably say it's not worth it. Right, it's it's not worth the effort, right? Some sometimes we we kind of look at places like that or we look at people or we look at situations and we just say there's 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 no way they're so steeped in sin, there's no way that God can break through their hearts. But Paul is going to help us to. He's going to help show us um, his ministry attempts. We are going to cover a whole lot of ground, Lord willing, this morning. And so I trust that you will follow along with great attention as we allow God to speak to our hearts this morning. We're going to see that Paul's underlying. Theme, Okay, especially as we will then again, we'll, we'll come back around to first Corinthians chapter 15. It will hopefully help wrap all of this up together that Paul's witness is emboldened because of the certainty of not only Jesus resurrection that he is declaring, but also he tells us there in first Corinthians 15. He says it's because of the certainty of his own resurrection, right, of his coming resurrection. Paul says, I'm willing to put my life on the line. Because I know there's a day coming when I will, will that, they, that eternity is on the line and that there's a coming resurrection. So what do I have to lose in this? And so that's the big idea for today's sermon, that the certainty of resurrection should embolden our witness. So let's go ahead and let's, let's jump in. First, the first section is going to be this, uh, verses 1 through 10. We're going to see how, how Paul commits himself to the hard work of evangelism. He commits himself to the hard work of evangelism. We, we, we also might be able to add to that the hard work of discipleship. And we've mentioned this some here in recent weeks, that discipling other people, walking alongside people in their, in their relationship with the Lord, it is hard, difficult work. And we'll get a g- glimpse of that here. Follow along with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19. So it says, while Apollos was at Cor- Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? Well, John's baptism, they replied. (laughs) And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one who's coming after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. It says there were about 12 men in all, now let's stop right there for a brief moment and talk about those verses. This account, Paul rolls into town, into Ephesus, and keep in mind—you remember—he he asked Aquila and Priscilla to stay there. We learned that last week in chapter 18. He instructed Aquila and Priscilla to to stay there, and one can only imagine that they probably began the work of the ministry. Telling people about the gospel, they're doing some of the groundwork going before Paul, uh, before he arrives back in Ephesus. You might also remember that Paul had actually told the people there in chapter eighteen that he would he he hoped to return. The people wanted Paul to stay there in Ephesus, and and Paul said. I've got to get home, right? I've got to get back to, to the church there in Antioch. He said, but hopefully I can return to you. Now we see Paul returning this on his, his third missionary journey. And what we find is Paul finds that there are some, some disciples, all right? And there's debate on whether or not they had truly believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It seems that what's happened is that they were fully aware of John the Baptist. Right? They were aware, but what they were unaware of, it appears, is that Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of John the Baptist's prophecies. And so what does Paul do? Paul brings to their understanding the, the truth of Jesus fulfilling those prophecies and no doubt shared with them of Jesus' resurrection. And then it says on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they received... The Holy Spirit. I think we can be reminded here that Paul's interaction with the 12 disciples. These and these aren't like the 12 disciples of the Gospels. These are 12 other men that Paul comes up to. I think we're reminded here how God uses different people in our lives in the process of discipleship. Right. Because the the evangelizing, the work of the ministry did not begin with Paul. Paul. In other words, there were other people, again, as I mentioned, Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, who we learned about last week as well. There were other believers who had began the work of the ministry, and then Paul comes along, and he is then he, he's the one who's able to speak into the hearts of these men. Right? Paul taught them how Jesus fulfilled John the Baptist's prophecies. He he Paul taught them about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of of the believer, we see that God used Paul in the lives of these men for a particular season to help them grow in faith. I mention that because I, I would say all of us in our walk with Jesus, the the process of discipleship is not is not isolated to one individual. But instead, I bet if we if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and and you've been following him for a number of years, you can probably look back along a long list of people. Whom God has used to help you grow in the faith, right? Maybe for some of you, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. And maybe it was your parents early on in those early years who helped disciple you. But then as you, as you grew older, maybe there was a high school coach. I think of Gina Rentro, who, who coaches a whole lot of people in basketball and sports. And Gina, I've, I've thought about the, the, the situation that you are, that you not only are able to coach them in sports, but you're also able to disciple them in their walk with Jesus. right? You're able to speak into their hearts, into their lives in a unique way. Where some of those young men, some of those young ladies who are under your leadership. That God has placed you in their lives for a particular time, for a particular season. To help point them to Jesus. And I'm reminded that all of us, right? I think of Bruce Wetnam, who teaches at, there at the University of Kentucky. Maybe there's some college students who are, who are fearful of, of standing out for the Lord. But yet, there you are a believer in Jesus Christ that you then can stand as an encouragement to disciple them at that season in their life to bring them that encouragement. Right, all of us, have we have all of these opportunities. And so again, it's, maybe it's a, a sports coach, a co-worker, a Bible study leader. Maybe it's a neighbor who at some point in time reached out to you and invited you to study God's word. Maybe a friend all along the way. God uses people in our lives during different seasons to help point us to Jesus. And every one of those people plays an important role in your discipleship. And I think it's a helpful question at this point, right? Who are you learning from right now in this season? Are you allowing someone to invest in your life? And at the same time. Who are you investing in? Right? Who, who are you taking the truths and the, the understanding? And, and who, who are you helping walk with the Lord? And so we see the Apostle Paul, he rolls into Ephesus. He finds the, these, these young men who were very familiar with John the Baptist. You almost might say that they were like Old Testament believers. And he opens their understanding to who Jesus is. And he just helps them in one more step. And their walk with Jesus. Well, then we go on into verses eight and nine. And so here we have Paul entering the synagogue, and it says he spoke boldly there for three months. Again, we, we know Paul that was his method of operation. He'd go into a city and head to the synagogue. It says he spoke he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. It says they refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. And so what happened? Paul left them. He, t- he took the disciples with him and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for, you might want to underline this, for how long? For two years. So that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now you have to understand, right? He goes to the synagogue and he's met with opposition. He's met with strong opposition Over the three months, the hearts of those who were in dialogue with Paul there in the synagogue, their hearts were growing more and more callous. Seems like there was a growing disbelief, a growing disobedience that was displayed by these men that as they were presented with the truth, their hearts only got got more and more hard. In fact, you see there that there's a sequence to their growing opposition. Luke indicates this in verse 9, that they, that they gradually became hardened to, to Paul's teaching. And then they became disobedient to it, to it, and then finally they began to verbally oppose him in public. It almost would seem that what's taking place here is that these, these people began to heckle, like they were some hecklers. We've, we've seen... Uh, those various protesters who maybe will stand up to s- during some sort of hearing or some sort of public discourse, uh, people will stand and, and they'll protest, they'll have those signs, and, their signs and they'll try to shout over the person who's speaking. It seems like maybe that's what was taking place with the Apostle Paul. And their hearts, as their hearts were presented with truth, they hardened their hearts toward it. I think a good word of warning for us as followers of Jesus is that we must be certain that our hearts are always pliable to God's word, that we are always willing to obey his commands. Because church, it is possible that our own hearts. Would become hardened toward the Lord when we begin to listen to the other voices or we start to disobey the Lord, even in the smallest of ways, right? The devil wants to tempt you just a little bit. And he's whispering in your ears and he's wanting to say, ah, that's not true. Right? I mean, this is as old as the Garden of Eden. Right? Did God really say? And he wants to tempt us just just to veer off course just a little bit. Oh, but everyone's doing it. It's okay. That's so old school. That's so old fashioned. And what happens is sometimes the calluses can begin to grow in our own hearts to where we even might even find our own selves wandering far from the Lord, even becoming obstinate or a, a vocal critic against those who are following the Lord. And so so I think we need to watch ourselves here. And so what happens, Paul's met with this opposition. And, and what does Paul do? Paul changes his base of operation. Again, so it's a reminder that as we are doing the hard work of evangelism, that you'll meet people who are like those first 12 disciples, those men who respond favorably to the gospel but yet also you'll be met with strong opposition. And so Paul, he doesn't give up here, does he? Instead, he just kind of tweaks his ministry, he changes course a little bit. And so Paul changes his base of operation by moving from the synagogue to the school of Tyrannius. And it says then in verse 9, okay, so what happened? He he took the disciples, maybe some of those 12 who he met early on or and probably others, he took them and they started meeting in a lecture hall or a school classroom. That was most likely owned or run by a, a man by the name of Terenius. In the ancient world, we have to understand that the, the working hours, okay, the working hours started early in the morning until 11 a.m. And then they took an afternoon break from 11 to 4 and then they would go back to work from four until the, the evening hours. It's most likely that Paul is teaching these disciples during his morning, uh, during his afternoon hour break. So, whenever, when, when many people are going and taking a, a mid afternoon, we would call it like, right, a siesta, when they would be catching a, an afternoon nap, what's Paul doing? Paul is there in the school of Tyrrhenius and he's teaching people, he's discipling, he's investing in their lives. And then we see this this incredible description, right? In verse 10, it says, Paul did this for how long? For two years. Again, Paul is working too. He's a tent maker. So he's working long hours and then he's investing. He's doing that hard work of investing in their lives. And for two years, Paul is daily meeting with these people and teaching them God's word coming alongside them to help walk in the way. And then in verse 10, 10 it says this went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, what? They heard the word of the Lord. Did you catch that? Now understand, right, right. Asia was a smaller territory than we think of Asia today. But nonetheless, you're talking about a large area of people that Paul is investing in the lives of these people and word spread. So here's how it happened, right? Were, were, were all the people of the province of Asia joining him in those afternoon hours? No. Instead, what is Paul doing? Paul is equipping those men and those women who are learning from them. He's equipping them to do what? To go and tell others. You think about Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. What does Paul tell Timothy? He says this. He says, what you've heard from me, teach it to other men who are then able to do what? Teach it to others. Right? So think about this within the context of what takes place here on a Sunday morning. This instruction is given to you. Why? So that you can go home and critique the pastor's sermon. Well, that might happen and that's okay. But ultimately, what is one of the purposes of coming here on a Sunday morning? And learning from God's word. So that you'll become puffed up, no. So that you can then in turn, teach it to others. That's how the word of God spread throughout the entire province of Asia. Is that is that these people would come and they would learn from Paul and then they would be dispersed back out to their homes uh, uh, around the countryside. And they would say, you would never learn. You would never guess what I learned today uh, today at the school of Tyrannus. What did you learn? And they would then teach it to other people. And then that person, right? It spreads like wildfire, doesn't it? And so we see little by little. As Paul is doing the hard work of evangelism, word is spreading. And church, I wonder, are you sharing with other people the truths that you are learning and how, what you're growing in in your walk with Jesus? It doesn't have to be me, right? There's a lot of great preachers that you can listen to. There's a lot of great Bible teachers that you can have access to. Maybe it's just the, the truths that you're learning in your own, in your own Bible study. How are you sharing that with other people so that the word of God is spreading throughout your cul-de-sac, throughout your community, throughout your office? So we see Paul is committed to the hard work of evangelism, and hopefully we can do the same. The next one is, is that we would trust that God's power will prevail again. Paul is facing down the beast's. There he's slaying dragons here in the city of Ephesus. And now in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, we're going to see how, how the power of Jesus Christ is put on display and how it's shown to be more powerful than any idols or any magical powers that the people were, were seeking after. We see that not only was God working through Paul's preaching and teaching, but God was also working through Paul in miraculous ways. We're going to see that God's power was displayed and prevailed over the powers of this world. Why? Because Paul was trusting God to use him according to his will. So now we join again looking there at verse 11. It says, God now did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Look at this. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. And their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. That is such a phenomenal event, isn't it? Now, I don't think. Like, I think of uh, when we go to these parades, right, the Jaytown Gaslight Parade, right, you have this guy who's pushing this cart with all of these trinkets hanging from it, right? He's selling it, and all of you children are like, Mom and Dad, can I go and get this, like, this toy sword or this lightsaber or whatever, right? I don't think Paul had, had like, set up some sort of gift shop, you know, and he said, Come and hear me preach, and on your way out, make sure you make, make your way through the gift shop and pick up one of these hankies that I touched, so that you can then take it home and 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 wave it over someone. It just seems more or less that maybe it just by mere accident, right? Someone somehow a handkerchief that, that Paul had left behind that someone pulls up and they take it and there's some sort of healing power that God would use this. I don't think this is a a I don't think this is a prescription of of how God necessarily works today. Maybe some of you have gotten in the mail from different organizations, right? A, a, a handkerchief or some sort of prayer mat that, that people say this has been blessed and so this is, has miraculous powers as long as you send us your monthly gift. I, I don't think that necessarily is how God works, but in this situation, God chose to work this way. Why? Because in the city of Ephesus, there was, a, there was an emphasis on magical powers, on demonic influence. And so what God is doing, God has chosen to work through Paul in this way to help show that God's power will prevail over all worldly powers. So Luke mentions to us how people were taking hankies Hanking's home and, and aprons that had touched Paul home. They're bringing him, trying to rub up shoulders next to him and just to get, get the scent of Paul on it so they could take it home and heal their loved one with it. Because now in verse 13, look what happens. So some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, "In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, they were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And again, this is the evil spirit speaking through the demon-possessed person. Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Now, I can only imagine if I'm one of those seven sons of Siva at that point, I'm probably going to be shaking in my boots. I, I'm, I'm probably going to be thinking, right, Cooper? I mean, can you imagine that, right? And This demon-possessed man talks to you, and, and the Spirit is speaking through him. And he says, who are you? I've heard of Jesus. I'm familiar with Paul, but I don't have a clue who you are. And then notice what happens. And again, there's some comedy here. It, I think we can chuckle at this a bit. It says, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, all these seven sons of Siva. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I can only imagine what a sight that must have been to behold. And especially if you are a member of the early church, as you're recounting this this event as you're telling your children and you say, you wouldn't believe what happened down the street to those old, those, those old sons of Siva. What were the sons of Siva trying to do? They were trying to hijack the power of God for their own purposes. They were trying to hijack it for their own purposes. But instead, we see that God is using Paul. God, God's power is working through Paul for his purposes. These men were attempting to use it for their own desires, for their own selfish gain. We we are reminded that when we attempt to hijack hijack God's power for our selfish purposes, that we are no longer living in submission to God, but instead we have placed ourselves over the Lord. We, we've tried to place ourselves and to use him for our advantage. So we know that that though Paul's miracles, that through Paul's miracles and these sons of Siva, what happens is word about this event spreads, and we see it then in verses 17 through 20 it says when this became known all right when the sons of sceva naked and bleeding they're running out of the house when this became known to the jews and greeks living in ephesus the people are seized with fear and the name of the lord jesus was held in high honor many of those who believed they now came and openly confessed what they had done a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scroll, scrolls together and they burned them publicly It says when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. It would have been in today's terms over a million dollars, probably several million dollars worth. And it says in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely. And what does it do? What did it do? It only grew in power. We see here how God uses the folly of these men to glorify himself. Right, these men who were wanting to somehow usurp God's power for their own advantages. We see how God uses it to lift high his name. And word and the region spread. And men and women far and wide heard the story. And it only caused more people to believe in Jesus. Because the power of Jesus that was displayed through the handkerchiefs of Paul was shown to be more powerful than these sons of Siva trying to hijack God's power for their own purposes. It says people were convicted of their sin. They brought out the magic books, they burned them. And these magic books probably would have been the property of new converts there in, a fee, in in the city of Ephesus. So you have to understand, like as these believers are believing in Jesus Christ, what's taking place? Their lives are being changed. They're turning away from old sins. They're turning away from idol worships. They're turning away from magical practices. They're turning away from immorality uh, practices that they had been participating in. And it says, verse 20, it provides us with such a wonderful picture that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and it was prevailing. The saints of the church... Their light is shining in a dark world. The saltiness of the saints is growing. Church, I pray that the Lord would allow us to be used in such a way that we would commit ourselves to the hard work of evangelism. Right, that we wouldn't look at our city with despair. That we wouldn't look and and see all of the headlines and become overwhelmed or overburdened and say, man, it's, there's, there's not a chance, right? What's going on? But instead, we would look at that and we would see that there's opportunity here for us to live as witnesses, to take the truth of the gospel to our neighbors. And then next, in Acts chapter 19, verses 20 and through 41, this is the last section. It's a long chunk of the chapter. This chapter concludes with a riot in the streets. And then it ends up with the crowd marching to a theater. It ends up with a the chapter includes the the final verses of the chapter include a two hour protest chant. and finally the city clerk is speaking is, is speaking some sensible words uh, to the people. Would you follow along with me as I just read as we go through these verses? again in verse twenty one Paul is is some different commentary remarks that Luke makes, that Paul is making traveling plans to continue to take the gospel. Verse 23, we'll get to the riot. Verse 21, he says, After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And so he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer, or while he still stayed there in Ephesus. Verse 23, the riot in Ephesus. It says, About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, he brought in a lot of business through the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers and related trades, and he said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in, practic- and, and, and in practically the whole province of Asia. Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. He says there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And even the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, That she will be robbed of her divine majesty. So here's what happens. Here's this guy by the name of Demetrius. Again, what's taking place, church? In this sinful, dark city of Ephesus. Right, The work of the ministry is taking place. People are telling people about Jesus. The gospel is going forth. Bible studies are being held. Right? The word of God is spreading. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is prevailing over all worldly powers. People are getting saved. And now the economy is being impacted. Right? It, right? People get serious when you start messing with their pocketbooks, don't we? Don't they? And so here we have Demetrius. He says, Listen, I right, quarter over quarter, my idol sales have gone started to go down. And I'm a bit concerned about this. So what does Demetrius do then? All right, It starts as an economic concern for him personally, but he knows that not everyone's going to be concerned about his <laughs> pocketbook. And so he kind of adds to it that there's got to be a religious concern. The temple of Artemis there in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a, magnific- it was a, a magnificent structure. And so it brought a lot of business. There were festivals that were held to worshiping this goddess of fertility. Huge money was involved here. Demetrius says, "Well, he he knows it's hurting his pocketbook. It's probably hurting others." others as well but he also knows that not everyone is going to get behind him if it's just an economic concern and so he then ties it to a religious concern the goddess herself then he even ties it to like a national or civic concern that somehow this goddess that we're so proud of that her name is going to be defiled so he calls together these people then in verse 28 it says when they heard this the people are furious and they began shouting great as artemis of the ephesians and what happened? Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people, seized, the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul, Underline verse 30, we'll come back to it. It says, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, they sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater says in verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Look at this. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. They just got caught up in the mob mentality. The Jews in the crowd, they pushed Alexander to the front. They shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a, a Jew, they all shouted in unison For about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Then in verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess." he's trying to speak sense into them. He's saying they've not done anything other than talk about Jesus. He says, if then, in verse 38, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen, if they have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils, they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, We are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened here today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Basically, the city clerk tries to talk some sense to them and say, Paul and his companions haven't done anything wrong, but if you're not careful, Rome's going to come and squelch us because you are the ones who are causing the disturbance. You notice most of the people didn't even know why why they were there. They were just joining the crowd. They had just fallen into all of the hype on social media. We're reminded that the gospel will affect social agendas and markets. Let me say this, that when the gospel begins to take root. In a city. It will affect social agendas. And it will affect markets, and economics. In Ephesus' business was down at the pagan shrines because of the transforming work of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus does his work in the heart of a person, it changes their lives. The city clerk is trying to demonstrate, he's trying to demonstrate some courteous courage to let them know there are legal ways for you to go about Pressing charges against Paul if he is to be charged. Now, the attention I'd like to draw here is in verses 29 and 30. It's this. Paul, what did Paul want to do? Paul wanted to go into, he wanted to appear before the crowd. But the disciples would not let him. Verse 31, even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, they sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. What was Paul wanting to do? Paul was wanting to stand before this mob, no doubt this bloodthirsty mob, to tell them about the resurrected Savior. To tell them about Jesus. To help them to understand the error of their ways. Paul was ready to stand alongside his ministry companions. Paul was ready to die alongside them. If need be. And the only reason why Paul didn't enter into the theater that day. Is because other people held him back. But Paul wanted to go in there. Church. When the mob is against you. When the mob is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is your response? Do we cower in fear? Or do we say, let me get in there? I think this takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where Paul describes this as wrestling or fighting wild beasts. It seems like he's describing this mob as being wild beasts. And notice... Paul says that the reason why he was emboldened, the reason why he could stand before those wild beasts is because he says his hope is not is not in the humanly, but instead his hope is in Jesus resurrection and his own coming resurrection as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about Jesus' resurrection. It's all about the believer's resurrection. And so what Paul is saying, Paul is saying that if they take my life, he says, I've, I've not lost anything. Paul's courage and boldness to proclaim the gospel before these beasts, before this maddening crowd, is embedded in the certainty and the hope of heaven. In fact, it was out of Christian love, it was out of love for his neighbor that Paul did all he could do to share the gospel with them. See, Paul, it says again, it says there at the end of verse uh, verse 32, it says if the dead are not raised, all right, if if we don't have any hope In life everlasting, if we don't have any hope in heaven, what does he say? Then we should just join the rest of the world. Let's go down to the nightclub and drink the night away. He says, let us drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But Paul says, because we do have hope in Jesus' resurrection, we have certainty in that, because we do have hope in our coming resurrection, he says, then I'm going to stand boldly before these crowds I'm going to I'm going to work myself to the bone to let people know, to help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to do whatever I can do. To share with them the love of Christ. See, Paul knew Paul wanted to go back into that into that theater. Because he knew that eternity was on the line for these people. Paul said, if there's no life after this life, then yes, let's go down to the nightclub and we'll party the night away. But Paul was certain of Jesus' resurrection, of what he had witnessed, and he was certain of his coming resurrection. And this emboldened his witness. You see, Paul knew that if these people were to take his life, that Paul would lose nothing but gain everything. Paul was willing to trade his life so that the crowds, the beasts who sought his death, could hear the good news of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Church, may we learn from Paul's example here in Acts 19. May we be reminded that evangelism is hard work. It's hard. May we be reminded that ultimately God's power is going to prevail. And may we be reminded that because Jesus is alive and that we are promised life everlasting. That we can stand before the crowds. And that we can fight those wild beasts. Would you pray with me? Father, help us now to take these truths and Lord, help us to live it out. God, I pray that you would embolden us that when we sense the Holy Spirit nudging us to tell someone about Jesus, to share the gospel, to point someone to Jesus, God, when the Holy Spirit is nudging us, God, I pray that you would help us to have the courage to be obedient in those moments to share the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And So God, take these words that we've studied today, apply them to our hearts, and help us to live it out.